the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, and co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Don, thanks for being on the program. Always a pleasure. I want to start, Don, by talking about a, a recent piece that, that you have got um, at the um, American Institute for Economic Research. And, and, and you talk about something that's frustrated me for a long time, and that is the ongoing public affection for price fixing. Uh, talk yeah. about that a little, if you would. Well, yeah, so, so consumers, of course, pref- would prefer to pay lower prices and higher prices. Workers, of course, would prefer to get paid higher wages than lower wages. And so there's this magical thinking that's long been prevalent among economically uninformed people, and that is, okay, well, we could, the problem is easy to solve. We could just have the government forcibly keep prices down for consumers and forcibly raise the, the wage for low-pay workers in the form of the minimum wage. And, and uh, these policies take no cognizance of the role that prices play and, 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 and what determines prices. Prices reflect the availability of various goods and services relative to the demand for those goods and services. And, and that reality is not changed if government says, hey, uh, you can't charge a price for propane gas higher than this amount. You can't charge, you can't pay workers less than this amount for a certain kind of, kind of labor. What the consequence of a price ceiling is, is a shortage. I, I don't know how many of your listeners are old enough to remember, unfortunately I am, the 1970s experience in the United States with nationwide price controls on on energy, and uh, you know whenever there was any kind of disruption because of uh, turmoil in the Middle East of oil supplies, uh, because the prices of gasoline and fuel oil and natural gas in the U.S. were kept artificially low by the government, uh, shortages emerged, and so I can remember as a young man waiting many times in long lines to buy gasoline. And sometimes I didn't get it. And so the, my, my family and I, we were, I was in college at the time, uh, in, in the later 70s, and we were literally worried about not being able to buy gasoline. And, and, and that's what happens with price control. And people predicted, by the way, they predicted, because Ronald Reagan won in 1980, and part of it was because of the awful experience Americans were having with these, with these gasoline shortages. Uh, people, and Ronald Reagan said, look, I'm going to get rid of the price controls. And he said, oh, see how silly he is. Uh, when that happens, prices of gasoline are going to skyrocket. And, uh, and what happened, of course, is as soon as the price controls were lifted, in, in early 1981, the price of gasoline did spike a little bit, but then it started com- coming down and down and down and down and down. You subtract taxes today, it's almost it, it's it's near a historic low. 
Hey, Don, can I just can I pause you for a, can I yeah. pause you for a moment there? I just want to amplify one thing you just said. When when Reagan took off those price controls on uh, on, on gas, a lot of newspapers started putting a daily item in the paper showing the rising price of gasoline because price controls have been taken off. Right, price rising, rising. Well, what happened, of course, is that incentivized production of more gasoline exactly. and the price dropped like a stone. And as soon as the price exactly. stopped, started dropping, those same newspapers all quietly uh, stopped reporting the a daily uh, price of gasoline. It, it, exactly. It, the pattern when Reagan eliminated the price controls on, on energy, exactly what basic economics predicts. Of course, you're going to get an immediate spike. It's going to happen for a short while. And then, as you said, producers will be incited to explore for more and produce more. And, and and with that increases supplies, and that's what happened. And prices of gasoline began began to fall, um, and so uh, and so you you can't you can't change reality by telling people they can't pay a certain price for certain things. Minimum wages are the opposite; they're price floor. And this is a contentious debate among economists. People want to believe that it's so easy to solve poverty or so easy to solve the problems of low-paid workers simply by the government mandating that they'll get higher wages. Well, you can't make someone worth more to an employer than that person is worth. And so if the minimum wage is imposed and the employers cannot produce an amount of output per hour that's at least equal to the, to the mandated minimum wage, that person loses a job or the job becomes a lot more onerous for that person. And we, we see this over and over again in the data. Uh, but people just don't want to believe it. You can find you know, some studies that say, oh, no, 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 the minimum wage doesn't cause unemployment. I think these studies are, are weak, um, and, and they're not in a majority of the studies. But because these are the ones that are so politically popular, these are the ones that the press and mainstream media and politicians latch onto when they want to justify a policy of literally pricing the least skilled workers out of the labor market in the name of helping the least skilled workers. And people will say, oh, but you can't live on a minimum wage. First of all, most minimum wage workers are teenagers living at home in middle-class families. Uh, Secondly, uh, uh, yes, a minimum wage income annually is very low. But you know what's an even lower income? Zero. And that's the income that unemployed people earn. Yeah, one of the really sad things about the the minimum wage, if you raise it too high, if you keep it below – what what entry level workers are actually getting paid in a particular area it doesn't probably do any harm but as soon as you raise it above that now you're starting to unemploy people and as you say the people who work for minimum wage you see this in fast food restaurants they're mostly teenagers and retired people you know making a few bucks yes. to supplement their incomes yes. and and, and yes. one of the cruelest things that we can do is to drive those young people out of the labor market because those yes. minimum wage jobs that are often taken by teenagers that's where a lot of young people learn the basic skills of how to get a job, keep a job, serve customers, show up on time, etc. And driving them out of the labor force at that age is really doing them a disservice. That's such an important point, John, because a lot of people think that the debate is couched in terms of income gained and income lost. Well, of course, income for these workers is, is important, but for a lot of these workers, I would venture to say most of these workers, the single most important thing they get is not the relatively small incomes they earn, but the the experience of working. They get they get the opportunity to to to, to enter the job market. They now have employers who can write uh, letters of reference for them, uh, and and so it, that's a main avenue for gaining experience and improving your skills and making yourself more valuable 
to employers down the road. And so when a, when a young person loses a job because of the minimum wage, it's not just the current income that's lost. It's the very valuable job experience that's also lost. You know, if I could just tell a quick story here, Don, uh, I run a think tank in Minnesota, and I've got an economist who works for that think tank who grew up in England. He grew up in Sheffield specifically. And he talks and he writes about the fact that as a teenager, he had a very low-paid job in a pizza shop in a Sheffield, UK. But he says that much of what he knows about life, you know, he learned working in that pizza shop. You know, that's yeah. where the foundation for, for going on to, you know, much bigger and better things. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, and but the people who support minimum wages, they, they just ignore all this. And they just they just imagine that employers are going to say, oh, well, now I have to pay my workers more. So let me just pay them more. And that's the end of the story. Or or they say, well, OK, we'll just pass it along in, in terms of price hikes to buyers. But then that but that's illogical, because if employ if, if firms, restaurants and retailers are raising their prices in order to cover the higher minimum wage, that makes their products less attractive for consumers to buy. And so they need less labor if they're selling fewer products. So there's no way you cannot get around it. the minimum wage damages most of the very workers that it is ostensibly meant to help. It is a, a, a cruel policy masquerading as a humane one. Don, we've got just a minute and a half left in this segment, but I want to make one more point or get your thoughts on one more point. It seems to me that a federal minimum wage is the worst possible kind of, uh, of, of, uh, of minimum wage because it's one size fits all. And, and, $15 in Manhattan is not the same thing as $15 in rural Oklahoma. That's right. Look, there's no question that it would be better compared to a federal minimum wage to have, to have minimum wages, if we're going to have them, set at the state, or even better than that, the local level. But, but, but that same logic tells me the actual ideal minimum wage is one set at the individual worker level. Let each individual worker uh, uh, decide whether or not a particular job is worth accepting. There's only there's only one appropriate minimum wage, and that is and, and, and that is whatever is the wage that a particular individual, uh, John or Susie or Sally or Sarah, chooses to uh, 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 below which that person will not work. And so, yes, I would prefer if we're going to have legislative minimum wages that they be state or even better local. But I prefer to have no minimum wage legislation whatsoever. You know, it's interesting. Back in the 1980s, uh, both the New York Times and the Washington Post published yep. editorials where they said that really the minimum wage should be zero because they understood yep. the, the very points that you've been making, Don. And yet somehow that learning has been lost in the intervening years. And they've, gone, they've, they've, they've certainly retreated back into ignorance, yep. All right, we're going to run to a break, and we will be back with more with uh, Don Boudreaux when we return. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking with economist Don Boudreaux. And, and Donald, in the first segment, we were talking about the, uh, the minimum wage I want to move on and, and uh, talk about another uh, piece that you have also at the American Institute for Economic Research. 
uh, that I couldn't agree with more. I'll just start by saying that. And this is Thank your you. piece about, about COVID-19 and the rationality or lack thereof of our collective response to that disease. Yeah, I feel like for the past several months as if I occupy an alternative universe from many people, including many friends who seem to think that COVID is a categorically unique, devastating existential threat to humanity. I think it is a very severe disease, particularly if you're old or compromised, but I don't see COVID as being remotely, remotely uh, as dangerous as would have to be in order to justify the widespread hysteria. I think the reaction has been wholly disproportionate and extreme and the costs that we're paying. And I'm not just talking about or even mainly monetary costs. I'm talking about costs in terms of foregone health care and other fronts. I'm talking about the, the, the social disruptions. I'm talking about just the, 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 the severing of personal connections that occur under these lockdowns. I think these costs are vastly in excess of the cost of the pathogen itself. I totally agree with that. And I would also point out, I know that in Minnesota, where I live, the median age of death, where COVID is one of the things listed on the death certificate, doesn't necessarily mean it was the cause of death. But the median age is 83, which is several years in excess of life expectancy in this state. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, that, that's a relevant fact, Don. I mean, it's ridiculous not to take into account who are the victims of this disease. And it seems to me that what we have done to devastate the lives of our young people is just, is just a crime uh, in, in the context of, of who it is that this disease really affects. I don't know if it will ever happen. I agree completely. I don't know if it will ever happen. Uh, but when the definitive history of 2020 and 2021 uh, is written, uh, if humanity is still in, uh, uh, rational, I think it, this will go down as one of the greatest self-inflicted wounds humanity wounds humanity has ever inflicted on itself. You know, maybe you know, rivaled only by you know some shooting wars. But this is just—it's it, just insane. There's just no justification for this hysteria. Uh, the media, though, tell, compl- the mainstream media tell a completely one-sided story. They never give for they very seldom give. The fact, the very relevant fact that you just mentioned, and that is the main victims of COVID are very old and elderly people. And most of those, most of those have, have which happens when you're old, they have uh, comorbidities too. So if you're 85 and you happen to not have any other comorbidity, you're actually not at that much of, of a risk. You're more at risk of, than a 25-year-old, but it's the age and the comorbidities that, that, that you know, it's, well, it's really the comorbidities that rise with age that make you that make you vulnerable. And, and so we are, we are, this disease is shaving off a few months, may, maybe a couple of years in some cases, of lies from, from some people. That's sad, but it does not justify this disproportionate, co- complete sledgehammering of society that's going on now. You know, Don, I get the feeling sometimes that there are, there are people out there who are just now waking up to the fact of mortality, you know, like as if, as know, if it weren't for COVID-19, you were going to live forever. I mean, I think I my know. attitude is, is the same as yours. I mean, I'm going to die someday. I know that. And, and I could die of a disease. It's possible COVID-19 could kill me. I don't think it will, but if, yeah, it's, it's possible. Yeah. But so what? I mean, I, I, you see these people. Uh, and, of course, the classic that, that people point out, and it's absolutely true, you know, the person driving in a car by himself or herself wearing a mask. I mean, it's crazy. You know, the level it's crazy. of hysteria that we're seeing is just unbelievable. 
I agree with you completely. It, it, it is as if humanity just really just discovered that death is inevitable. <laughs> there, there was, I, I was watching a clip of a BBC interview with one of the few really great British MPs on this matter, a guy named Charles Walker. He's, he's excellent. And the interview is, is sort of astonished that, that this British MP uh, uh, wants us to be more rational about, about COVID. And, the, and, the, and the, the, the interviewer says, so is, you know, in a British accent, of course, are you telling us that humanity has to learn to live with a certain amount of death? <laughs> this guy's kind of, he says, of course. I mean, you know, yeah, and the certain amount is a hundred percent too, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, the very fact that this guy would say this on 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 you know in, in a prominent you know in a civilized modern country is astonishing. And so I'm I'm almost I'm almost thinking that there, there's a really serious pathogen that's out there. It's not so much COVID. Nineteen, the coronavirus itself, it's some as yet undiagnosed pathogen that's gotten into a lot of people's brains that stopped critical function from working. It's terrible. You know, in, starting in what was it, 1347, I think, uh, Europe was devastated by the Black yep. Death. And, and, and historians now estimate that the Black Death may have killed 50% of the population of Europe. And it wasn't those 85 and up. I mean, you know, it killed everybody, and it literally killed about half the population of the continent. Uh, one of the worst catastrophes in, in human history. Uh, but, you know, we are treating COVID-19 like it was the Black Death. You know, I mean, if you were looking at that kind of, a, of an epidemic, you know, some of these measures would be rational. But this is a disease that is a little bit more lethal than a typical seasonal flu, probably several times as lethal as a typical seasonal flu, but that is survived by the overwhelming majority of, of those who contract it. Yeah, I saw an estimate the other day. I don't, I don't know how, I guess you can nitpick at it, but I think it's the University of Maryland, I think, estimated that COVID, not age adjusted, just generally, COVID is 3.5 times uh, more lethal than the seasonal flu. All right, so that's significant. But has our reaction to COVID been 3.5 times more severe than, our, than our, the steps we take in response to the seasonal flu? No, it's been thousands, tens of thousands of times worse. What do we do with respect to the seasonal flu? Well, some of us take flu shots, we stay home when we're sick. Some of us die every year and, 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 and we're buried. And, you know, but our funeral, people who die from flu, their funerals aren't filmed and, and shown sensationally on television. Um, and, and so, yes, it is, it is, it's a serious disease. COVID is in the same way that the flu is, it's a little more serious than the flu, but what is, what the, the, the true calamity of the past year, the true disaster, the true disease is the disproportionate over the top hysterical, I say deranged reaction to this pathogen. Don Bujo, we've got just one minute left in this segment. And I just want to toss this question out there. I mean, I've been frankly stunned at the passivity with which my fellow Americans have have taken to this regime of being bossed around by their governors. I mean, I would not have believed this kind of sheep-like response to be possible. I, I agree completely. Uh, when I first heard about these lockdowns back in March, I thought, uh, you know, fortunately, you know, the good old American spirit is going to, you know, resist that and, 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 and it, uh, but it didn't happen. It happened in so few cases. Uh, people managed somehow. People got scared out of their gourds, and um, and the, the sheepishness came out. And most of our fellow Americans 
but seem to be perfectly content to be treated as lab rats in this grotesque social experiment that's now underway. Dan Brudeau, let's leave it at that. Thank you very much for being on the Dan Prof Show. My pleasure. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.